Welcome to the Writer's Right Podcast, the show where every writer has the right to speak their mind. I'm your host, Joshua Howe, and as always, we'll be giving attention to the last thing my guest has written and their writing process. Today's guest is a writer for The Athletic, one half of the Raptors Reasonablest Podcast, and editor and materialist of Raptors Republic. It's Blake Murphy. How are you doing, man? Good, man. How are you? I'm good. It's, it's, we've had a nice week outside in Toronto. I've been waiting for a good fall week, and it's been this week, and it's been amazing. Yeah, it's been, uh, you know, you get those nice early mornings for preseason games, and then you have a, a whole day in front of you. Yeah, yeah, really early games. Uh, the first one I was up for and struggled a little bit but made it through, and then this morning I had to watch it later on League Pass. I was I was passed out. I, I was up late, so I wasn't able to I believe I was up late, too, that Nationals-Dodgers game. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, pretty crazy. You were So you were just in Quebec for training camp. I was. Yeah, how was that? It was cool. I'd never done a training camp before, so... Um, the last couple of years they'd done it out West and because I was freelancing, you know, that stuff's out of pocket and it just wasn't, you know, it's, it's really just like four practices in a row and an open scrimmage. So, um, in terms of budgeting for the season, it hadn't been worthwhile, but it was cool to get to do, um, you know, the access, like I said, it's just, it really just felt like four practice days in a row and then the open scrimmage. So nothing crazy there, but it was cool, man. It, it was cool to like, you know, all these practices, every coach and every front office members around and a lot of time to like, you know, just shoot the breeze with people and, and get some, not like info for reporting, but just like get the vibe around the team and, and what everyone's looking at in camp and things like that. Yeah, it'd be good for relationship building, I imagine. Yeah. Okay, so uh, the main reason that I brought you on today is to talk about one of your recent pieces for The Athletic on uh, the Raptors' starting position, positions. Uh, really, there's two, I guess, that are that are open. The piece is called Looking at the Race for Several Toronto Raptors Starting Spots. Um, yeah, it's up right now. You can go read it. If you haven't yet, I highly recommend it. So Nick Nurse has mentioned that there's about eight players who are in the mix for uh, potentially starting, and, which isn't surprising, really, with the loss of Kawhi and Green. And as you mentioned in the piece, Nurse's proclivity for acting pliably as possible also kind of makes makes this not that surprising. And Lowry, Gasol, and Siakam are probably the locks. I, I imagine everybody thinks that those players are getting uh, all going to get starts, although Lowry and Gasol are probably getting eased in. Gasol because he played pretty much all summer, and Lowry because he's still recovering from the thumb surgery. But this isn't, you know, uh, just because of that, it's also about, you know, the spots aren't just about winning them. They're kind of about the starters being chosen based on like matchups and stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, the party line. And I think the interesting thing with the Raptors choosing starters this year is, um, you know, I, I, by the end of that piece, I kind of conclude that, okay, it's open and they've talked about eight guys and there are these different options, but I do think they're going to settle on like a pretty consistent starting five. Eventually. Um, I think, you know, the starting five that, you'll see most often make some sense as long as everyone kind of plays the expectation um, and it's a fit at both ends of the floor and it sets the bench up decently enough. So um, I could see, you know, last year Nick Nurse wanted that same kind of flexibility and then early in the year OG Ananobi gets hurt and mm-hmm. or not hurt, uh, has to leave the team for a personal matter and then Pascal Siakam runs with the power forward job. And okay, well that spot's locked down now and you already had one, two, three locked down now four is locked down because Siakam's too good to go back to the bench. Uh, and then you acquire Marc Gasol, and that stops the fluidity of the, the center spot. So while they use 20-plus starting lineups, uh, they also use the same starting lineup in every game in the playoffs. So sometimes 
you know, you go in with the idea of having that kind of flexibility and versatility, and then one lineup just makes so much sense uh, that you stick to it. So I think it's an interesting push-pull from a coaching perspective where I think a lot of why Nurse likes the open-mindedness towards starting role, uh, it's not just about matchups. I think it's more about setting a culture for the organization where you know, if you are a bench guy, you know, that doesn't make you a second tier guy on the team. Or mm-hmm. if you get moved from the starting lineup to the bench, that's maybe not a demotion. Or if you get moved from the bench to the starting lineup, you know, that's maybe not a, a coronation. I think he wants culturally people to be less rigid about how they see their roles and how they see their fit on the team. Uh, so I think that's part of why, like, I do think he believes in that from a basketball perspective where having the ability to, to start smaller one game or gigantic the next game um, is helpful, especially looking ahead to playoffs and potential matchups there. But I think at this time of year, especially you want a super competitive camp, I think a lot of it is about culture building and just trying to drill into everyone's head that like, hey, yeah, Kyle and Pascal and Mark are good enough th- that they're going to start pretty much every game and, you know, Siakam's going to play 35 minutes or whatever. But for everyone else, you know, it's about how do we maximize the whole 48 minutes and the whole 82 games. And it's not just about, like, if you're one of the five best players, you start. I think I think it's important to him culturally, and that's what makes the decision-making process there so interesting. Yeah, it's interesting, like, the the balance you have to ride between sort of attempting to get as egoless basketball as you possibly can while also maintaining some level of hierarchy that needs to be there. I mean, when you juxtapose this with something like the Boston Celtics, who clearly had some issues there with the hierarchy and they never really figured it out, uh, and obviously they didn't really have very long with that particular uh, group, um, Kyrie obviously being the main guy there to, to try and figure that out. But that was an example of just where it didn't end up working and some guys had to go separate ways and all that stuff. Whereas, you know, in this situation, that, that's, the goal clearly is, is to, make that, to make that work so that that sort of situation doesn't happen with the Raptors. And I, I think that's a really difficult thing to do as a coach, but I think the Raptors have done a pretty good job so far, and Nurse obviously pushes that even in just his, like, offensive system sort of idealism with sharing the ball and wanting everybody to, to be a part of the offense. Um, yeah, and you're going to see that a lot more, right? Like, like that was his philosophy last year. But at the same time, Kawhi was using over 30% of offensive possessions. And at least until late in the year, we talked a lot about how, you know, the Kawhi offense was almost its own parallel offense unto itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could see it even more this year where Nurse's, um, you know, his imprint on the offensive system and, and how the team approaches things gets even more pronounced this year. Now, again, the, the one more thing I wanted to say about, like, the cultural buy-in to the uh, lineup fluidity, mm-hmm. you mentioned the Celtics. You know, these things are a lot easier to sell when you're winning. Yeah. So yeah, um, there's also a bit of an incentive to start the best lineups because, you know, getting out to a really hot start is a good way to get people to buy in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned as well, like, I mean, like, so Kawhi Leonard also being gone is is an interesting part of this too, I think, right? Like, there's going to be, like you said, more focus on Nurse obviously has always had the proclivity for his movement-heavy system that he likes that a lot of coaches have particular things that they want to do and they have to adjust to the players that they have because obviously personnel is uh, just as important. And Kawhi being on the team as a superstar and as a player that can do a bunch of different things, 
um, you know, he isolated a fair amount because he's really, really good at it. So that's not a bad thing. People talk about isolation possessions as if they're the most evil thing in the world now, depending on, you know, what team you're watching, maybe not Houston, but so less isolation possessions is probably going to be a thing this season, even with Siakam uh, sort of taking a bit of an ascension. But uh, yeah, so, you know, it's it's interesting as well. You mentioned the you have a you have a chart in the piece that shows the usage rates of the players from last season, and yeah, just uh, in the starting lineup, their usage rate within right, that five seven. right within the starting lineup. And you, met, you talk about how important it's going to be for whichever players are starting to be able to absorb these additional uh, usage rates and be able to generate positive output, which is I think going to be a bit of a bigger deal than some people think. Because there's going to be a lot of room to operate without Kawhi, which I think so. A lot of people I, I think understand that to the point that there's going to be a lot of space without Kawhi there um, that needs to be spread around and taken up. But I think there's, there's this uh, idea that Siakam's going to take all of it, and that's just not going to happen. Because even in your piece, you show how he was taking up with that group uh, a fair amount of that of possessions and time and. Uh, with the ball in in the group, even with Kawhi, so that whoever ends up uh, starting over the course of the season is going to have to be able to absorb some of that usage and make something of it. Yeah, weirdly, you know, I, I think the common thought because it was Siakam's breakout season and Leonard load managed for twenty two games was that you know Siakam did a lot of his damage when Leonard sat. Um, actually, his usage percentage was 24.4% within that starting fivesome. So mm. uh, now that includes the playoffs, and obviously he took on a, a more substantial role as the year rolled along. Uh, but yeah, if you're projecting Siakam to soak up too many of those possessions, you know, there he overall used just under 21% of possessions last year when he was on the floor. The jump from that to 30 is enormous. Like, I don't think even, even through two preseason games where he's carrying a load like that and it looks pretty good. You know, you, that's a that's a tall task for any player. Um, there are only you know I think fifteen ish guys that average a thirty percent usage rate every year, so um, that would be a big ask. I think it's going to have to be more of a by committee, and, and this mm-hmm. I think will inform their decisions in the starting lineup. You know, I don't think any of the bench guys projects as a twenty five percent usage guy, and I think you're going to see Gasol and Lowry use a little bit more. Um, than, than they have last year. You, you, like Marcus All might land somewhere between Memphis and Toronto usage. Marcus All, Kyle Lowry might, even if his own individual shooting doesn't go up, uh, maybe running a lot more pick and roll and you get back toward what the offense looked like before Kawhi. Um, but the other thing is, you know, even if you give Siakam, Gasol, and Lowry small bumps, you know, there, are, there was more than two fifths of the offense gone. So, um, you know, that's that's something that those guys are, are going to have to take up. And, and that's why, you know, in one of those spots, at least I, I kind of leaned toward someone who has a history of being able to get their own shot and willingly filling a, a bit of a usage void. Yeah, which makes sense. And I think Gasol in particular, I think a lot of people are looking towards him to uh, take with a usage rate um, increase just doing I guess running more of the offense has more of a hub than he was last season I mean the Raptors didn't really like they you he was used that way and he's such a good passer that he's able to do it almost no matter where he is and and he's able to figure out um the flow of the offense but again they didn't have a lot of time with him really throughout the end of the regular season to sort of figure out exactly what they wanted to do and obviously it ended up working out anyway but I wonder if you go back to more you know high post stuff with him and and have cutters around him and 
you know, especially with groups that won't have as much individual creation, because um, I think that's a concern, obviously, with this team, especially in the half court. So I wonder if you see more of that. I don't know how much, but I feel like that's got to be something that Nurse explores, right? Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's that's a part of it. And that's what, you know, again, what goes into these decisions is just there are so many facets to, to consider and, and try to balance out here. So, um, you know, I, I think I think the piece was a little more interesting before we got two preseason games and it already kind of looks like they're, they've made these decisions. Um, I know they said they're going to move it around a lot and, and Kyle Lowry's return will tweak things because maybe that, maybe that opens up Fred Van Bleet starting mm-hmm. at the two a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they give someone else a look at some point, but uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's certainly the, the uh, part of the impetus for the piece was nurse kept saying, yeah, oh, we're going to rotate through like eight starters. And then the first couple games, it's been, it's been, you know, pretty straightforward business. Yeah, so you kind of laid out the people who have a chance to really to make the spots, and like you're saying, it's been pretty consistent through two season, the two preseason games. But um, they're still interesting to go through, especially because I mean, some of them were I think a bit long shots to start with. I mean, everybody has like their, I think the idea of what the starting lineup was going to be before this, and it probably will be that starting lineup. But it's still interesting to look at the other guys and think about when and why they might show up later in the season, even if they're not there throughout uh, the majority of it. Mm-hmm. So in terms of shooting guards, which is where you started the two, um, Danny Green was there obviously last season. There's no player that can shoot or defend like him, you know, that combination on the team now. And so as you point out, the Raps will probably look to replace that with playmaking and ball handling and stuff like that. And the first player you go to is Norm, who I think everybody is expecting to start and... He, I mean, he has the most experience in that spot. He's paid like a role player to be in that kind of spot. This is the opportunity, you know, he's been waiting for. And, you know, he had a pretty good postseason, a little bit up and down, but he was great against the Bucks. This is his chance to show that he's not just a situational player. And, I mean, through two games, I mean, we're recording this on Thursday, so the second game was this morning, like we were talking about earlier. And he hit five threes, all, I think they were all spot-ups pretty much, but, like, he hit them in different spots, and they were in transition and on the move and stuff like that. And he looked really great this morning. Yeah, he did, and, and he's seven of ten on threes through the two preseason games. There's only one three, I think, that was like kind of an objectionable decision. It was an off the dribble one, uh, but yeah, I think it's you know you look and, and he's not he's not going to be the shooting threat. Like Danny Green hit forty five point five percent on threes last year and led the team in three point volume and was also uh, an all defense level defender. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know that no one is going to step into that role, but Norm Norm's three point percentage has been all over the place during his career. He's been at times a forty percent shooter and at times a high twenties shooter. Yeah. If that settles in as a high thirties number, I think you know even if you like another two guard option better for that slot, as long as Norm's three point shot is in the high thirties, I think he's going to fit fine. Um, he's one of the the guys who's better he's more capable of, of attacking uh, a closeout and making things happen from the corner not a good enough playmaker yet to where you know this this free-flowing everyone touches the ball offense maybe doesn't suit him as well as it suits some other guys mm-hmm. um, but he can uh, attack a closeout and, and make plays for himself and i think there's going to be a need for for guys who can get their own buckets uh within that starting lineup um the most interesting thing about the the diet of his three so far you mentioned how they came in a handful of different ways Last year, he shot 40% on threes, and a huge share of his volume was above the break. He shot better in the corners, as most people do. If some of his volume shifts to the corners, 
Um, you know, Danny Green was among the lead leaders in corner three-point shooting last year. If Norm takes more of his shots from the corners, then suddenly maybe that three-point percentage looks even better. Or if not looks better, you know, you're insulated against some of the regression because you're taking fewer, tougher threes above the break. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's something he can do too. I mean, everybody was kind of concerned about him, his growth, I think, over the past couple seasons, and understandably so at times. I mean, even at the beginning of last season, um, things seemed a little more up in the air because before all the injuries and stuff, people weren't sure if he was actually going to get enough time to show what he's capable of, and even if he got that time, if he was going to capitalize on it. But, I mean, at this point, you know, he looks like he's somebody on the team who can create his offense individually, like you're saying, at his best. And I, I think you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I think the um, nurse and some people around the team have been talking about getting him to work on having more kickouts in his drives once he actually gets to the rim because he's pretty good at getting there but not so great at finishing. I mean, he's, I guess, average at finishing at the rim, but they obviously want to get him continuing to move the ball once he breaks down the, the defense. Yeah, you know, that's uh, that's something that it's going to take some time to mm-hmm. come along. It's clearly not there yet. I, I just don't think it's an, it's an instinct um, yeah. for him, and, and it's something that, you know, there we're four years in now. He's he's kind of who he is, but um, you always hope that a guy that a guy improves with those kind of things, and you hope that um, the offensive system encourages that more, and that growth kind of comes with that. You know, I don't. I've seen enough Norman Powell twelve point one <laughs> assist box scores at mm. this point to maybe not have a, a ton of faith that it's coming, but there's always there's always room for growth within a guy's skill set. Yeah, and um, I mean, so in the end, I think he's probably the favorite to land the spot, like you mentioned in the piece. I don't think it would be that surprising if he's there throughout most of the season. Although, the next guy that's pretty interesting as well is Van Vliet, and I've had conversations with people already about Van Vliet. I was on uh, Sean Woodley's podcast, Locked on Raptors, we talked about Van Vliet leading up to the season, about you know how much he's going to start, how much he'd be better as Lowry's backup, um, what he needs to prove this year, uh, especially because he's in, going to be an unrestricted free agent that they can't extend. So, I mean, he's always worked really well alongside Lowry uh, in the spot at the two if he started there. I mean, he, at his best, he's still, you know, an off-ball player. He's he's great uh, spotting up and running around off screens and moving around just in general off-ball. And I feel like, I mean, I feel like he might be more suited to finishing the game at this spot than starting it. I mean, I made the main concern for me starting him, I mean, if you're doing it for a consistent amount of time, that's a lot of wear and tear on a small guard and having the two point guards start might not be so great for bench depth, be a little depleted at that spot. Uh, you mentioned in the piece that there's really only Cameron Payne and Isaiah Taylor behind him and maybe potentially Patrick McCaw. So what do you think about Van Vliet potentially starting at the two? Yeah, I mean, I, like, your point about how it's better as a closing lineup than a starting lineup is basically where I'm at with it. I'd absolutely understand why they'd want to start him there. Uh, you know, it helps with uh, the shooting issues, if you're not sold on Norm Powell as a three-point, as a high-volume 40% three-point shooter, uh, which is entirely justifiable, you know, Fred and Kyle Lowry are your probably your two best three-point shooters who aren't Matt Thomas. Um, it gives you dual ball handlers, which if you're trying to make the offense more of a drive, kick, swing, drive, kick, swing, having guys who can, you know, kind of a, an east-west approach to the pick and rolls and those weave plays that they like to run, uh, that extra ball handling is pretty valuable. And then both Lowry and Van Vliet have shown they can guard up a position pretty capably, at least with the type of off-ball threats that are at the two, maybe not the bigger twos. Um, but I just think, you know, to my point earlier about 
the cultural uh, idea of, well, we have to maximize 48 minutes over 82 games. I think if you're maximizing the team's performance over 48 minutes, it makes a little more sense for Van Vliet to come off the bench, come in and play some of those, play in some of those two guard lineups, close with some of those two guard lineups. Um, but things are probably going to be a little better balanced with Van Vliet off the bench, running that second unit, giving some, sh- some much needed shooting to that second unit. Um, and then, you know, I, I think his minutes should be up around 30 this year, both because he's one of the best players on the team and because the Raptors need to see what he can do in that kind of role. Um, but I think I think the rotation's probably just going to flow better with him as the backup, especially because I'm not convinced right now that they're actually going to keep a third point guard on the roster. The way it mm. looks and the way the rotations have gone and the buzz has been like it looks like that might just be a third point guard by committee kind of thing so in that case then you really want Van Vliet coming off the bench um, because there is no third point guard if someone gets into foul trouble early on or something like that right and I I think the like you mentioned the growth is the main thing too I mean I know Van Vliet has has mentioned that he wants to start eventually whenever he can and stuff like that but um, I feel like he'd be able to do more coming off the bench um, still you know I mean like we know what he can do already off the ball and how good he is at it and that all that stuff is fantastic. And we've seen it in a big enough sample size that we know he can continue to be good at it. But the stuff that we want to see him improve on is stuff that, you know, he can't be standing by and watch Kyle Lowry run the pick and roll. We need to see Van Vliet do that um, consistently and well. So uh, that's, I mean, that's really, I think the main thing um, for him this season, if he really wants to be able to, to prove himself going forward to maybe get a bigger deal in the off season is to kind of, embrace the the bench role again and try to do as much as he can with it yeah i think you know he his attitude about it is probably the right one he said in camp something along the lines of you know he wants to start but it's always team first and the team success is going to do more for him than you know the the game started column in his basketball reference page or whatever and i think you know if he comes off the bench he might get occasional spot starts and stuff but if he comes off the bench primarily and his minutes are up back toward not even back to work because they haven't been there before, but if his minutes are up around 30 minutes a game, you know, then you're talking about him in the six man of the year conversation again, probably if he mm-hmm. plays the form. So, um, you know, that, that kind of buzz certainly doesn't hurt heading into free agency either. Yeah, definitely not. Uh, so the other guy you mentioned, um, we'll go through quickly, just Patrick McCaw potentially, um, which is, that's what, that's the one that was the most surprising to me. And I think is the least likely to happen, um, which you mentioned as well. But I mean, the Raptors, did give him uh, you know, a two-year deal, and they wouldn't have done that if they didn't think that he has a shot to capitalize on his potential. And Toronto's history of developing guys is really good, but it's kind of tough to start him at this point because you know he's a near non-factor offensively. He's a great defender and energy guy, but... You know, is he a great defender? Uh, well, he has a reputation of that because like people keep saying it. Yeah. I feel like he's a chaos defender. Like He's going to help force a lot of that, turnovers. Yeah, that might I be don't. what it is. I think, I think I think people sometimes like they look at him just running around buzzing around and they are like you know great defender. I mean I'm I'm definitely guilty of seeing that before and being like oh yeah he's you know he's running around busting his butt like he must be a great defender. Yeah and look I've given him a lot of leash because I really liked him at draft time and as a rookie so you know I'm I kind of anchored a little bit to where I want him to be to be good but I I don't think you know, obviously last year coming into it, joining a team midseason and playing a bench role mm. is not ideal. Uh, but even through two preseason games, and you don't want to overreact to those or whatever. But I, I haven't, you know, I, I think he looks like the fifth guard. And I don't, 
you know, I understand why they'd want to talk him up as a potential starter, why they'd want to give him a shot if other things don't click. Um, but I don't think, you know, I, I, he's certainly not going to bring uh, the shooting that, that Norm or Fred would offer. No. And he's certain he's probably not going to bring, you know, he can handle the ball and he can attack, but he's not a natural um, playmaker for others. And because he never looks to shoot for himself, um, you know, I don't think he puts that extra pressure on the defense with anything other than his speed. Um, so I'm just not sure that his defense, even if it is, uh, even if the quality comes up, but the consistency comes up, I don't know if he's offering enough at the other end uh, for a lineup that might, you know, if you plug him in there, that that's a pretty tight spacing lineup. So uh, I don't see it, but they've pretty consistently over the last year been higher on him than, uh, than I have. So, um, you know, I'm sure there's something they're seeing there that I'm just not. Yeah, and so, okay, so quickly, the other two guys at that spot, very unlikely, but hey, their names are in there and they're interesting. Everybody is aboard the Terrence Davis hype train, um, and he's shown out amongst the fringe guys. He's been fun to watch. He had that fourth quarter in the first game, uh, was really exciting, and that the dunk he had over Jaron Blossom game, who, fun fact, uh, when I was covering a 905 game or, uh, this past season and was writing a gamer, uh, Jaron Blossom game entirely shifted the course of that game and had basically everybody I know rewrite their gamers. So that, that was mm. fun. But yeah, uh, Davis had the big dunk over him and basically he, you know, he's been shown, he's been pretty good. He's shown a lot of interesting things. Um, and then the other guy is Malcolm Miller, who I still really like cause he's got good length. He's a three and D guy. I've seen him play before in, in games with the Raptors that it mattered that one in Houston two seasons ago, um, where he was slotted in for OG, I think was really exciting. So, uh, those two guys, I mean, they're probably not going to start. But what do you what do you think about what you've seen from them in preseason? Yeah, I mean, Miller's a guy that I've always been fond of as like a guy you could just drop into whatever lineup, and I think he's going to look better the better the guys around him are because he knows his role and stays within it. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't think you know he's on the fringe to even make the roster, so him making a jump to starting would be at least a little unexpected. Um, Davis is a guy though that like by the end of the year, especially if Norm doesn't click in that role, I could actually see him getting starts. I think he has you know obviously undrafted rookie, so expectations overall um, should be modest. But I do think his skill set is a kind of plug and play skill set. He can do you know he's not elite at any one thing offensively other than his athleticism but mm-hmm. he can do a little bit in the pick and roll he can do a little bit off of dho he's an okay shooter he's a good transition player and then defensively he's not consistent yet but he has good length and he tries pretty hard on the ball um, so i just think like he's almost a middle ground between some of these options where the ceilings in any one skill is maybe not as high as the other option, but there's a floor across the board in that he doesn't have any, you know, glaring weakness other than inexperience. So uh, those are the type of guys that I tend to, when you're looking at a a fourth or fifth starter, those are the the kind of guys who I tend to lean toward because you can just plug and play them in any lineup and they'll probably be able to find a way. Uh, Obviously he's a little further down the list and we'll have to, climb his way up and maybe hope not hope because he's i'm sure he's a good teammate but um he'd be waiting on something else to not work before he got a shot but i think he he's shown a little bit of of intriguing stuff here and um i think he'll probably get to show a little bit more with the 905 if he doesn't open the season in the rotation um he's he's an exciting guy i think he's gonna be a fan favorite this year yeah, it'd be fun to see him with a 905, and I think that'd be a, that'd be a good spot for him too. Yeah, selfishly, I want a lot of these guys with the 905. <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way, I this is this just popped into my head. I don't. This is really random and kind of an aside here, but 
I don't know if you know this yet, but has Ball Ball landed on a G League team yet? Uh, is he not on a two-way? He is, uh, he is, but I don't know if he... Oh, right, because Denver doesn't have a team. Yeah, Denver doesn't have an affiliate, so I don't know which yeah. team he was going to be on. <laughs> no, I think that'll probably happen after the draft, because like the way it works is he'll... Denver will like, submit um, that they want him somewhere, and then it goes through... Um, like a hybrid assignment system. I think it's it used to be called the flex system. I forget what they call it now. But basically, teams can be like, "Oh, we'll take them. Like we're, we're happy to do it." Um, but I don't. You know, that's probably a consideration for after the draft because then teams will have a little bit of roster certainty and stuff. Um, yeah, it's hmm. a weird. Personally, I thought when they introduced two-way contracts that if you didn't have your own affiliate, you shouldn't be allowed to have two-way players. Hmm. I I think there should be some sort of punishment for being this late an adopter and being this cheap. Yeah. But I mean, there's, al- there's only two teams now because New Orleans has one, right? So now there's only two teams left. to uh, Denver and Portland, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Oh, anyway, that was uh, something that just popped into my head. Okay, so the other spot is obviously the forward position called small forward if you want, but the Raptors are kind of malleable. So, um, you know, Siakam can play pretty much any spot on the team really depending on the lineup so um just kind of relegated to the word forward here and obviously Kawhi was there last season defense and rebounding is what they're gonna replace more than anything um I thought Kawhi was a fantastic rebounder for the team last season I thought Mm -hmm. he did a a lot of the heavy lifting in that department that nobody really talked that much about it was the best I've ever seen him with that aspect of his game I mean he was a good rebounder with San Antonio but he didn't have to do it there like he did with Toronto with a lot of the small lineups and you know, Abaka, depending on how locked in he is, he can be an up-and-down rebounder. And um, Gasol has never been, like, you know, he's not a Jonas Valanciunas type rebounder. So Kawhi being in there, and, and especially when they were going to smaller lineups, uh, his rebounding was huge. And so the obvious choice to stick in there in his former spot is OG. And, I mean, so this guy, you know, he started on a 59-win team two seasons ago as a rookie, um, often guarded the other team's best player. He provides shooting. And this is kind of the chance to show what he's got. There's a lot of people talking about what kind of leap he's going to take. I don't know if he's going to take one from what I've seen in preseason. He looks a lot like like himself. He looks a lot like the you know the rookie year that I, that I saw. I mean, he's doing a couple things that are, that are interesting, um, some stuff off the dribble, but I'm still concerned a little bit about his handle. It seems a little loose still, but, uh, you know, I mean, this is this is his shot. I mean, if he's going to, he's probably going to get a lot of these starting opportunities, and if he is able to expand his game and has worked on a lot of stuff this summer, then this is the chance to show it, right? Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, you know, obviously it's a very big season for OG and Obi. There are a lot of reasons to make a case uh, to, for him to start. Um, if you're, you know, purely from a more cynical or, like, coldly analytic point of view, the Raptors have the most invested in him as a first-round pick who has two years left on his deal and then restricted free agency. So, you know, you want to give the guys that you're already invested in uh, a bit of a shot, but I also think, you know, you, like you said, he started on a 59 win team, and part of what made him successful is that he has the skill set that fits a fifth guy. Mm-hmm. He was there to help protect Demar Derozan defensively and knock down open threes, and anything else he did was gravy. Um, you know, Pascal Siakam is a better defender than Demar Derozan, obviously, um, and whoever they have at the two will probably also be a better defender than Demar Derozan. Mm-hmm. So OG won't need to hide someone as much. But if Pascal Siakam is going to take this huge usage jump, you probably don't want him guarding the best player on the other team right. uh, possession to possession. So if OG Ananobi can come in and fill that role, and I thought it's it's preseason, obviously, but I thought his defense has been 
terrific through two preseason games and in the open scrimmage that we saw. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if he can come in and even do that, then again, his offense is kind of gravy. And I think, you know, I'm with you. The handle is not all the way where it needs to be yet. I'm I'm on board with the fact that they're letting him kind of take a lot of possessions like that in the preseason here to, yeah. to figure it out. I think he's made a couple smart passes. Um, there was There's one that sticks out. You know, he had one where he... It was like basically a driving kick. It was a little sloppy, but it led to a three. Yeah. Uh, he had another where he cut baseline, and right when he got the pass, it was like an immediate touch pass out to Matt Thomas for for a three. Um, so some of those things, like he's always been maybe an underrated cutter, and, and I think that he's capable of, of making passes and, and making plays uh, for other people like within a small role. So um, I, I'm on board with them expanding that in the preseason here. I think it's easier to tell a guy, hey, go do all this stuff and then rein it back in than it is to enter the year with a very limited role description for him. Um, and I think, you know, it's like obviously they're going to be a team that wants to win this year. But longer term, you can take some bumps to, to keep Ananobi developing. Uh, mostly, though, I just think he's going to this year be one of their five or six best players. And he's going to be good enough to, to warrant a starting spot. So uh, there are other guys you can consider there. You know, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson is kind of a funky uh, guy who can fit in different lineups different ways. Stanley Johnson has not looked particularly good, but he has kind of a similar, you know, if you were making the case for him, it would be fairly similar to the just with a lower floor and lower ceiling, I think. Um, and then the interesting one is the, the other one I, I had mentioned in the piece. The Raptors have talked about maybe Serge Ibaka in what would be a giant Siakam, Ibaka, Gasol lineup. You mentioned the defensive rebounding as a potential weakness. Uh, I'm with you there. OG Ananobi is not a very good defensive rebounder statistically. Mm -hmm. You would hope, I think, that playing bigger – like Ananobi is the same size as Siakam functionally. So I think you'd hope that playing bigger between the three front court positions, you'd you'd be fine. Um, But, yeah, starting Ibaka there would certainly be a way to – to goose that and keep uh, you know keep Abaka in a role where he's he's getting some starts and getting more minutes and the Abaka Gasol pairing worked pretty well in small samples last year. Yeah, I mean the Raptors are obviously really high on OG. They've been hyping him up all preseason and obviously Massey's kept him out of trade talks, uh, any of the important ones and um, so they're clearly invested in him. And as for Abaka, like those big lineups, you know, there's certain teams that those are going to be, I think, more necessary, especially because of the rebounding than others. I mean, Philly. The, the Sixers are like monsters, basically, right? I mean, they're massive. Yeah, I mean, and, and obviously Abaka, like you would like to see what he has in terms of playmaking. That's been something to keep an eye on. Like he last season, he made some unexpected passes. That uh, he's had a couple good ones so far too. Yeah. So that's going to be something to keep an eye on for sure. Boucher is a backup center. Kind of exciting. I always like more slim duck. That's fun. Yeah, but I, I think it's most likely, like you mentioned in the piece, that Ibaka stays as the backup center the majority of the time. So, Yeah, and, and I think you know the interesting wrinkle of that is that, and we've seen it a little bit so far, is maybe that puts Boucher in a power forward spot. And, you know, obviously the line between power forward and center is pretty, yeah. you know, it, it's pretty thin now. <laughs> And you'd want Boucher around the rim for his rim protection. Mm-hmm. But he has a little bit of a perimeter game. And you can invert things often enough and, and like, switch the role of your two bigs that, um, you know, I, I don't think he would struggle to play alongside Ibaka if that's how the bench units shook out or whatever. Um, you know, I I have trouble seeing them starting Ibaka at the, at the power forward spot too often. Um, 
you know, even though even though I'm on board with it and I'm on board with it as an in-game rotation tweak, I just don't think it's going to happen that many times. I mostly I just have I have a good amount of faith in OG and OB being good enough that this whole idea of fluid starting lineups um, doesn't come up a ton, except at the shooting guard position or in very specific matchups, like you said. Yeah, I think so. I think the, the obvious starting lineup is, I mean, probably the one that figures to be. The one that'll be most used, and that's obviously Lowry, Norm, OG, Siak, and Gasol. Um, it just makes the most sense. It's the best players in the best spots. But it will be interesting to see Nurse mix and match because we know that he will. I mean, last season it was partly by necessity, but like you've said, that's part of a culture thing. He wants to do it, and it's it always. I mean, it worked last uh, postseason. I mean, even though they locked up really their starting units, that everybody was comfortable. Nobody was unfamiliar with playing with somebody else. So um, that was cool to see. So that'll be interesting to keep an eye on. I want to move to now the sort of the other half of this podcast, which is uh, more focused on the writing. And this is something that I've wanted to talk about with you for a long time because I've been reading you for a long time. I mean, when I started before I started at Raptors Republic, which was a couple years ago now, a couple seasons ago, I read you on there, which was the main reason to go there. And uh, this is something. So I've always thought you're writing, and now followed you obviously to the Athletic. Your writing as as writing as a craft is precise and thoughtfully heavy there's never anything in there that doesn't need to be is what it feels like um i'm a fantasy nerd so i immediately compare it to something like tolkien whose writing is dense but every word matters and for some people it's difficult to read because it is it is heavy because there's just a lot in there but it's because every single word every piece of diction is chosen um with a particular purpose and matters and so i feel like that here i think i reread your sentences more than anyone else who i'm reading not because obviously it's poorly written but because i want to make sure that i'm comprehending everything and and putting it into the larger context that it deserves um but at the same time it's not entirely like surgical you keep it from being anything but boring there's always plenty of lively adjectives and stuff like that to keep it exciting so i'm curious just off the top what your background in writing is um, yeah, I don't really have one. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I went to like, I got a business degree and worked in like an office job where my job was like primarily Excel stuff uh, for a couple of years. And I would write on the side for fun. Uh, and then I went back to school to do a master's of journalism, but I only did a year and, um, got kind of, I always say dropped out and they get mad at me. I jobbed out. I got a job <laughs> and left school. So I don't have I don't have really any formal writing training other than just like doing it for fun for a long time. Um, in high, this is super embarrassing, but in high school, uh, I did these things called e-feds, which is basically like a wrestling version of a text-based role-playing game. Hmm. Um, and the better your writing was, the better you did in these things. So that was like my first introduction to writing. Hmm. Um, but mostly, it's just like I just write a lot, and this is it's why the the advice I give to anyone who wants to write who like hits me up is just like you like reps are so important because um, you'll just find your way and get better on your own that way um, now to be completely honest I think my the actual like con- like my actual writing my prose is the weakest part of what I do like I think I'm confident in like the analysis and you know explaining dense things fairly well uh, but I actually think the actual writing is where I could um, stand to improve a lot and maybe that's because I don't have a don't have an actual writing background. Do you, did it take a long time for you to find your writing voice? Do you think you've found it? And like, is it partly because you don't necessarily have that background? 
Yeah, I mean, it took a while for sure. Like, I've gone back and read some of the stuff that I wrote uh, when I first started out blogging for fun. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're trying to be like a really bad version of Bill Simmons here. (laughs) And then, like, as I got a little bit older or or, like more experienced, it's like, oh, you're trying to be like a bad version of John Hollinger here. Uh, (laughs) And then, you know, there was a point where like I kind of started to, you know, get a little bit of a groove. There was, Mm -hmm. um, before I got to the score, I did like a ton of analytics stuff. I did it. I would do analytics pieces for basketball, baseball, and hockey. And I got in a pretty good groove there where I think that's where I learned a lot of the taking something complex and explaining it in a digestible way. Um, because, you know, I, I, I used what I would call the dad test where like, if I could explain it to my dad, uh, who is like a hockey only fan, but wouldn't care at all about any analytics, uh, like goals and assists would be the only stats that he knows. Mm-hmm. If I could explain it to him, then I was explaining it well enough. Um, so that's where that that part kind of came from. And then, um, yeah, from there, I don't, I don't know. Like, I think I have not like a super unique voice or anything, but I think like you can tell when an article's mine now, mm-hmm. and I can kind of tell when I'm in a flow. It was uh, it was honestly one of the hardest parts about um, writing the the book for Carl English this summer was that I, I read it back, the first edit, and sometimes I was like, well, that sounds like me. I, that can't sound like me. Um, I don't know where it came from, though. It comes from, though. Like, I think it's just I think it's just reps and experience, and um, you read your stuff back and see what did work and what didn't work and um, just kind of narrow and narrow. Or, or you try new things and you add those things eventually, too. I think it's, you know, I don't think, unless you're one of the most established and successful people that you're ever done, like, really crafting your voice, like, like Zach Lowe writes like Zach Lowe and doesn't need to change and should always be Zach Lowe. Mm-hmm. Um, but any for any of us like a rung, like rungs below that, uh, you know, you always want to be be tweaking and trying and growing. Um, I don't know. That's a cheesy answer, but I don't have I don't <laughs> no, have a good one. So. No, I mean that, that makes sense. I mean that's that was uh, like that was going to be the next question. If you hadn't answered it, was do you feel like your voice is constantly evolving? Because um, I think that's something that everyone should be doing as a writer. I mean, yeah, maybe if you're like the most accomplished person ever, you don't have to worry about that so much, or maybe you just don't need to think about it. But for everybody else, like you're saying, I think there's sort of a need to constantly be evolving with your writing, looking at it critically, looking at it from different angles, how you could change things, how you can tweak things. Because if you don't, then you just get stuck in the mud and maybe you're only going to be as good as that. Um, when you're done, I mean, writing is, is like almost any kind of art. You could, you could just, you know, tinker with it forever. Um, which is why so many writers find it so difficult to, you know, send off a piece or hit publish on something, um, because it just feels like it's never done and that it could be better because it could be, but you know, that doesn't mean it's not good, but it can always be made better. Yeah. Um, One of the things that I've found too, is like, sometimes I don't want to say like get in a groove, but like sometimes you get into a bit of the, the rhythm of the season because it's a long season and you're writing a lot. Uh, and then I'll like read something back. Uh, and I'll be like, oh my God, like I've fallen into like a pattern of using the same phrases or sounding the same mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. too often. And then it's like, okay, well, you know, you can go too far in terms of having a voice or sounding like yourself to where it just like your pieces start to sound the same. And that, that becomes, while it's your voice, it's, it becomes a little uninteresting. Um, so there have been times where like, you know, I notice a bad habit. So at the end of every article, I control F for a certain phrase or a certain word to make sure that I'm breaking the habit of using it all the time. Um, so yeah, I think you're like, I think you're spot on that you always want to be tweaking it and growing. Um, you know, the familiar, the familiarity is nice and, and having, having a voice that is distinct to you is good, but I also don't think you want to like lock into it. Um, 
because you're going to change and your approach is going to change. And yeah, like you said, like it's something that it can always be better and you should always want it to be better. So, yeah, I know you're um, a big reader outside of the sports world as well. And which I find interesting and think that everybody should be. I think if you're, no matter what industry you're in, I think you should always be reading outside of it because it kind of keeps you fresh, keeps your mind on other things as well. And you get to see stuff written down that would not be written that way in whatever industry you're working in. And I'm curious if there are any authors that you've pulled things from, either consciously or maybe unconsciously. Um, like, for example, I first learned parentheses, I'm pretty sure, from J.K. Rowling when I was a kid reading Harry <laughs> Potter, and I have used them ever since. Sometimes I switch them out for M dashes, but I almost always have parentheses in my work. Yeah, I love M dashes to, to a fault. Um, <laughs> no, I, I do. So um, I try to read a lot of fiction. Mostly that's like. Um, to like mostly I, I just like reading in general, but I feel like in season, uh, too often nonfiction feels like work that I'm doing. Um, so I don't want to like this summer I binged a bunch of nonfiction like range and the MVP machine. Obviously I, I want to see what other people are writing about and writing like in like tangentially related fields. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I like to read a lot of fiction. Um, I don't know that it like plays into my writing at all because again, I think like my prose is not a strong suit of mine. Uh, but I think it, it helps creatively, um, to be like immersed in, uh, in your own field, but like in a way that you wouldn't write. I, I don't know how to explain like how it gets from A to B, but I just feel like it keeps me a little sharper and it keeps me a little more curious about writing by reading people who are writing entirely different things and in t- entirely different environments. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the thing I always run into is that as I'm reading that stuff, it makes me want to try writing, that kind of that kind of stuff, and there's just no time for it. Um, the other thing I like to do a lot too, and I've tended to do this weirdly when I when I wrote about all sports. Um, you have to keep up with all of those sports and read about them all the time. But as I've become more siloed into just basketball, I actually find I enjoy reading like baseball and hockey and, and other sports work more in terms of like. Uh, reading it for the sake of how I might approach my own work. Like um, I love reading like Justin Bourne on the NHL, for example, or before he got scooped up, Jeff Sullivan at Fangraphs on baseball. Uh, I just, I like seeing how people, one, I, I don't like to read too, too much basketball because I don't want to like subconsciously take people's takes or approaches to things. Mm. Um, but I just like to get outside the bubble a little bit and see how people in other sports are approaching similar problems or how they explain things uh, and, and where it translates across across sports and stuff like that. So I, I don't know. I just read a lot anyway. Um, but I don't think, you know, a lot of this stuff isn't like I'm reading it for this purpose to add to my writing. It's just like I like reading a lot. And I think that the more you read and the better people you read, you'll just become a better writer because you have a better feel for what reading, like what stuff you like to read, right? Yeah, I mean, so I I pretty much do the same uh, to some degree. What I tend to do is um, I'm a word fiend. I love words. It goes back into my English background. Um, I'm obsessed with different kinds of words. If I see a word that I don't know, I will immediately write it down. And I have an actual document on my computer just called words. Um, And it's really, really long, (laughs) embarrassingly long, and just full of uh, words that I didn't know, and I'm trying to incorporate into my vocabulary, and... um I, mean, I think just, this is a challenge. On my next piece, I'm just going to slide a bunch of <laughs> esoteric words in there. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes you have to be careful because it's like you're writing something and the, and the word doesn't match your voice at all or it's, you know, it's something random. But, 
you know, it, uh, it's, it's just something that I, I kind of, I've always done and I'm always interested to do. And so that's, that's one of the things I enjoy about uh, reading different, uh, different people is, is coming across stuff like that and saying, oh, that's interesting. Like I, I could use that somewhere. So that, that's something that I do um, on my end. But uh, I also wanted to quickly mention, um, so you're one of the hardest workers I've met in the industry. You have a, that reputation in the industry already. And when it comes to writing, I mean, you write a lot and um, pretty much like like every couple of days for The Athletic. Or sometimes it seems like daily. No, I like during the season, I probably average five or six a week. Yeah, yeah. So basically daily. And um, you and I have talked about imposter syndrome before. Um, especially when I started at Raptors Republic, uh, I was terrified of hitting the publish button almost any time I wrote anything. Um, I think a lot of writers deal with it and have it, and it's something that tends to stick with people uh, for most of their lives. If you're a writer, you're always going to be a writer, and imposter syndrome that is something that always is kind of there. And I'm just curious, like, how do you handle that when it comes to your writing, and is there maybe a healthy way to sort of channel that feeling? Yeah, I think the first thing is, and I think I told you this too, is uh, I don't have the link handy in front of me, but um, they've shown that like the people who suffer from imposter syndrome generally tend to be people who aren't imposters. Like that level of <laughs> self awareness helps make you better and more critical of your own work. And I think you know the jokes about how writers tend to lean towards self loathing or not liking their own work um, is for a reason, even if it's not true across the board and it's not super healthy. Um, for me, imposter syndrome has got a little easier over time, just like naturally as you get a little more established and a little more comfortable. Um, but it still pops up sometimes like in the summertime when I go over and I'll write some baseball or some rugby or something like that, because it's not what I'm doing every day. You get a little, you know, a little anxious about how it'll be received or, or if you're presenting it in the right way and things like that. Um, even something like, you know, if I shift off of, what I'm regularly doing and I do a deeper video breakdown, uh, you know, I'm pretty confident that I'm putting the work in and I'm, I'm presenting that properly. And I, you know, it's, it's a decent piece, but there's always a chance that like, you know, some assistant coach is going to grab me the next day and be like, Hey, that's not what we were doing there. Or like, Hey, that's not what that's called. And I've somehow picked it up wrong. That, that doesn't really come up, but it's always a, it's always a concern. So I don't think, you know, I think as you get more experienced, you get more established, those voices quiet down a little bit, but I don't think they're, I don't think they go away, at least not for me. Um, I think some of it is healthy. Um, you know, some of it is why I do work really hard. Um, I, part of, part of that is just, I really enjoy the job and I am a hard worker, but I also, you know, if I, if I'm confident that I've put the work in and I've put the effort in and I've studied it and I've watched the games closely and things like that, um, you know, you're, you can minimize those feelings a little bit by knowing at least if there's disagreement, um, it's interpretive disagreement and not because you're, you know, not because I was talking out of my ass or anything like that. Um, so yeah, in terms of advice for like how to people to deal with it, I think the big thing is to recognize that it's, it's fairly common and it's, you know, the actual feelings of imposter syndrome and the anxiety that comes with that are not healthy, but the level of self-awareness and being critical of your own work, um, and wanting to make sure you're really good, like the, the roots, what's at the root of that feeling is positive and it's going to help you. So, um, you know, that, that realization can sometimes, you know, if you, if you break it down and do a kind of a CBT approach, um, you know, those root causes aren't that bad and they're going to help you. It's just, so you, you kind of, if you get that feeling, you break it down into its core components. Um, you can maybe manage it a little easier, 
um, that way. Uh, that might be too much CBT talk for the question, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's the way I kind of look at it, and it it slowly gets better, and then you think it's gone, and then you get like walloped with it one time out of nowhere for no reason, uh, and then you start all over again. <laughs> yeah, I I felt that. Uh... In my limited time in the industry and around industry people, the writers in particular have always been um, super nice about everything. Um, and I think maybe that's partly why. I mean, I don't know if they're all dealing with imposter syndrome, but you talk to a lot of them and they and they send, they seem to say, oh, yeah, I've had that before. And I think partly because of that, a lot of them are uh, humble and always willing to help. And uh, that's that's been a big thing that I've noticed in dealing with uh, the other writers in in. Uh, the industry around here um, and with the Raptors, all Raptors people, even the people I haven't necessarily talked to or met in person that maybe I've talked to online have been extremely nice about everything. So last question here, have you found that there are other aspects about yourself, like, like, you know, talking about imposter syndrome, have you found out that there are any other aspects you've discovered because of writing? Um, yeah, that I'm a lot better, like this isn't work related, but I'm a lot better uh, writing things down than talking about. Um, I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't same. think it's like any secret, uh, among people who like read or follow me that I don't really like podcasts. Um, not that I'm not happy to do this one, but I don't like, <laughs> like, I don't like hosting with podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd much rather just write. And that's like, you know, I don't, I don't really journal or anything like that, but like when I've dealt with stuff before, I always find it a little easier to, to get everything out written than, uh, then audio. Oh man, we just uh, we just got a Woj Zach Lowe alert NBA preview special with the uh, WWE style graphic of them looking like they're about to go head to head. Sorry, I got distracted <laughs> by that coming up on my screen. Terrible podcast guest. This is why I don't like. Uh, this is why I don't like doing it because I'm just an awful guest who's distracted by Woj alerts. Um, but yeah, man, I, I think that's that's part of it. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm still. I'm still working through all that stuff and like the, the growth that comes on the personal side. Like, to be honest, I've been so career focused the last couple of years that, uh, a lot of the non work growth has kind of fallen to the wayside. So I'm still kind of navigating all that stuff. And I think obviously like the writing, that's all stuff that you, you navigate forever and, and try to, you know, work your way through and improve with. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know really other than the fact that I'm much better writing than talking. I don't know if I, if I've taken too much away from it. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, that's part of the reason I started this podcast. I've always been much better at articulating myself through the written word than I have been in person. And that's partly just because of my personality. And I've always been very introverted. And it's been difficult for me to even uh, certain stages of my life just talk to people, (laughs) Uh, which is definitely why I should have went into journalism. Um, (laughs) But uh, but here I am. Don't get me wrong. Like even... Like, Lewis makes fun of me sometimes because I don't ask a lot of questions in, like, scrum settings. Like, I think most people want to get better stuff from one-on-ones in general. But, like, I just also get, like, a ton of anxiety about doing that. Like, mm-hmm. it's a weird thing where, like, I'll do a hoop talks and I'm talking to, like, 100 or 150 people and I don't care at all. It doesn't bother me. But then, like, I've always had a thing about small groups. Um, so one-on-one I'm fine and large – like, talking in front of a large audience I'm fine. But it's, like, the – like, if there are seven or eight people there, that's when I get super anxious. So – I don't know, man. I think that stuff always comes up. It's, uh, there's not, you know, I don't think, well, I mean, I hope that some people just like put it behind them and it gets better, but it's not a, it's not, I don't think for most, the thing that just like gets buried and you solve it and move on. 
Yeah, that's something I'm still working on too as somebody obviously very green going into this industry is especially stuff like scrums and small groups and um, just taking advantage of that and trying to say something without your brain immediately telling you that you've said something incredibly dumb. But yeah, like, so, I mean, that stuff makes sense. And uh, I think a lot of people deal with it. So it's uh, good to hear you talk about it. But um, yeah, that's pretty much all the time we have for today. So uh, I'll get you uh, (laughs) off the podcast quickly here. But I want to thank you for coming on again, Blake. I really appreciate it. Um, Is there anything you want to plug before we go? No, man. I, uh, you know, follow me on Twitter, Blake Murphy ODC. All my work is at The Athletic Toronto. Um, Yeah. That's it. I got some cool stuff coming down. When, when is this podcast going up? Uh, it will be going up tomorrow on Friday, October 11th, which is my birthday. Oh, well, happy early birthday. And I guess <laughs> the one thing that I would have to plug is that next week I have a really big Terrence Davis feature coming. So oh, nice. um, that's something that I'm excited about. So check that out at The Athletic. Cool. So definitely go and read that when it comes out. Um, this piece, again, we talked about today was looking at the race for several Toronto Raptors starting spots. You can go read that right now. It is up. On The Athletic, um, if you're looking for this podcast, it is called The Writer's Write Podcast, and you can find it on Anchor.fm or the Anchor app if you have it. You can also find it on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify as well. This is only the second podcast where I've mentioned that you can find it on Spotify because a lot of people were asking for it on there, so you can go get it there now. Um, you can also follow the podcast on Twitter, at Writer's Write Pod, where I post links to the episodes and to uh, my guest's work. Until then, you can follow me at Havolution on Twitter as well, and you can find my own online work at Raptors Republic. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day.